Welcome to Song Surgery, where we dissect hit records with the songwriters who composed them and the singers and musicians who performed on them. I'm Sid Holmes. Let's get started. After years of minor success as a solo singer and as a duo with his wife Gwen, in 1974, George McRae landed at the top of the charts worldwide with one of the biggest singles ever. Written by Harry Wayne Casey and Richard Finch of Casey and the Sunshine Band, the disco classic Rock Your Baby is one of music's best-selling records of all time. This is his story. Rock Your Baby was one of the first disco hits. 11 million copies topped the charts in the U.S. and U.K., it was more than 11 million, though. Oh, I'm sure. Rolling Stone voted it number one song of the year in 1974. Absolutely yes. fabulous. When I think of the first disco songs, I think of two. Hughes Corporation and yours. That was the first disco song. It was the first disco song. It started disco. They didn't have a name for disco then to rock your baby. All the DJs that play rock your baby and uh, rock the boat, and always the floor would be full of people dancing all the time. They played other songs, but as soon as they put Rock Your Baby on, the floor just, everybody jumped on the floor and started dancing. Many DJs have told me this. George, your song was the first song that I ever played that the people would, if I want the people to dance, they put that song on, the floor be packed. Many DJs have told me this throughout my adventures in this music business. When you think about longevity, why do you think your song has held up more so than the Hughes Corporation song? Because it's a great song. I cannot say it was a great song. People loved it. It's indescribable. As far okay. as still stands so long, Evergreen, you know, they still play. I have fans now, young kids, you know, like uh, 13, 14, 15 year olds writing for autographs and, you know, and telling me stories about the song. Like the grandkids. There's a video of you with Jules Holland and his Rhythm and Blues Orchestra. And that yes. video has 4 million views on it. Not only that, there are a lot of kids in there. How are young people, and I mean like teenagers, how have they been turned on to that song? And why do you think that it resonates with them? Because uh, the song is, um, how can I describe it? The, the beat, the, it, it's for real. The, it was the song was recorded really with live musicians, actually, and not with uh, what they do today, sampling everything. And there's nothing wrong with it, but it, it, the feel of it, the beat of it, all the seventh and eighth music has a certain kind of feel to it. That's uh, it was all done live. It was all done on tape. You, you had to do it on with one take and not going back, doing it again, record again, and sampling and drop a voice in. You know, I just had to sing the song one, no more than two times, the maximum, you know, to, to get it on, you know, to get it on tape because you only have so much room to do it on. Nowadays, you know, you go there, punch it in, that punch that word in, put that word in, and put a new word in, edit it. It's unbelievable today. But back then, you had to sing from your heart, and you had to sing what you meant and feel. And really deliver it on one or two takes. Back then, it was, we only did it on an eight-track recording machine. Let's go over your background. You were born in Florida and the second of nine children. What was dinner time like around your house? 
<laughs> my mother had us at home at five o'clock. Be home at five o'clock to eat for supper. If you're not home at five o'clock, you're not getting supper because all the rest of the siblings would eat it all up from you. We made it a purpose that we all sat down at the table at five o'clock and say our blessing, you know, give thanks to God for the food. And after the blessing, we just add the food we want and go for it. If we had uh, chicken on the table, fried chicken, my brother and I used to look at the piece we wanted and we just, who get it first, that's who get it. <laughs> <laughs> when did you discover that you could sing? Oh, I discovered that uh, when my, in church, I would always go to church with my grandmother and my mother. There were two churches I was brought up in, uh, Payne Chapel or AME. It was a trap the church and came to Garden of Christ. That's my grandmother's church. It was a, a Pentecostal type church where we get there and dance and shout and sing and praise God, you know, and spirit hit you. You get up there and just, hallelujah. And another kid, you watch them do that and try to uh, imitate you know, the patrons of the church, like Mother Johnson, get up there and shout. So we, as kids, we imitate her at home. You know, <laughs> try to do things, though, just for entertainment. It was uh, Christmas time, our Christmas pageant. And now my grandmother's church, six years old. And she said, uh, get up there and sing Silent Night. And I said, well, I don't know, I don't know. And she gave me a certain look. It's the way your grandmother look at you. You had to do it, you know. You had mm -hmm. at the time. <laughs> you better Please, sir. So I got up there, you know, and uh, I was scared. I got to start singing Silent Night. And when I finished, people stood up and started clapping. And I ran to my grandmother, jumped to the lap and said, Mama, what's wrong? What's wrong? Oh, Mama, what's wrong? Oh, you said they love you. They were giving me a standing ovation, you know, and clapping their hands and everything. They love you. I looked and said, and she said, Go sing one more, sing one more. So I sang one more song, you know, and the same, and the same result. So I, that's when I got the bug, you know, I love, oh, I love the same. The people like that. Did you sing in school as you were growing up? Yes, I did. We had a school choir in elementary school from sixth grade to eighth grade. And I was in that choir. And then after elementary school, uh, in high school, I joined the glee club. We had a school choir there. And that's what I was singing to. All the solos. For some reason, God bless the soul now, Miss Gillum, she gave all of the tenor solos to me. George, you're going to do the solo. She always gave me the solos. Now, and, and, you know, we sang a song and, and then the other club come behind me with background harmonies and everything. What was it about your voice that she liked? I had this high lyric tenor type voice. And I think I got it from my mother because my mother had a first soprano type voice. She used to walk around the house singing opera songs. And I used to try to walk around and try to imitate my mother, you know. You know, and she had a voice like a canary. I said, Mother, you should have been a singer. You miss your car. Why don't you be an opera singer? But back then in the 40s and the 30s, when she was coming up in the Southern part of America, it was very difficult, you know, then for Black people to really sing. But she did it in uh, high school and come to find out my music teacher in high school taught my mother too. And I didn't even know that at the time. Miss Mariah Gillum, and she taught me how to sight read, gave me vocal lessons, so you know, how to control my voice, breathing and, and all of that. So uh, that's where I really got it from. But during a teenager, you grew up listening to all the songs on the radio. And I listened to country music and 
pop music and oh, R&B. So that's where I got my uh, training from, actually uh, imitating other artists on the radio. So what happened after high school? I understand you joined the Navy. Yeah, after high school, I was planning on going to uh, university, but my uh, mother couldn't afford to send me because my two sisters were already in university. So I was like, okay, I can't go. And there was a time when the Vietnam War was getting ready to start. And I said to myself, wait a minute, I don't want to go shoot someone in a jungle or in my army. So I said, I'm going to join the Navy. I went down to the, uh, the Navy office, uh, Navy recruit station there my hometown. And I was saying, I want to join the U.S. Navy because uh, it's traditional. My two uncles and my father was in the U.S. Navy themselves. So I said, I want to keep up the tradition. And back then, the Navy also had uh, veterans uh, that was in World War II, so they gave me extra points. But I didn't need it because they gave me the test, and I aced the test out. So what was your assignment in the Navy? First, I went in as an aircraft mechanic, working on aircraft engines, repairing the engines and everything. I came out of basic training first three months, and then went to Pensacola, Florida at the uh, aircraft school there. It was a school for training for all the pilots for, for the neighbor's training. Uh, it was a helicopter squadron. And uh, I was doing uh, doing the maintenance there, working on the aircraft or helicopters. But a uh, year and 18 months there, I was transferred to Japan. And then after that, I did it for about a year. And then the captain called me, called me in the office and said, Craig, you are going into the office. You thought of uh, someone who needs to type in the office there. He looked at my folder, my files, and everything, and see, oh, you type in the resume. Oh, okay. So you say you're going offline, you're going into the office. And and I was happy too, say, hey, because, hey, that's like a great job, you know, sitting down and typing and everything, and you tell everybody else what to do. So he put me in uh, the bookkeeping office there and uh, to write up all the reports to take care of the aircraft. We had to make reports on everything that needed to be done to the aircraft. From the engines to every part, from the avionics part of it, the hydraulics part of it, all the books, everything had to be kept. And the timing had to be changed. Every part had to be changed at a certain time. You had immediate maintenance and you had major maintenance. So we had to do all this to all the aircraft to keep the aircraft flying. Were you ever concerned that you would have to go over to Vietnam? Yes, we did. That was the whole point. Our plane flew parts, anything they needed. And the most important thing, priority, was mail. In fact, we fly from the Philippines, carry to the carriers, fly to the carrier, fly to Vietnam, from Vietnam back to the carrier, carry back to the Philippines. How long were you in Asia, and how did you get out of the Navy? I was 18 months in Asia, and while I was in Asia, I was staying, and I'm off duty time in the clubs there. So, yeah, it was very... Excited for me, but it was, it was very dangerous, but still it was very, uh, being young, very exciting. You know, when you're young, you're stupid. At this. <laughs> you <know? laughs> Why did you leave? My time was up. I joined it for uh, six years, but my time was up. I started to re-enlist, but they was talking about sending one of my squad detachment uh, directly into Vietnam. They wanted me to re-enlist, but I thought about, wait a minute now, I know I'll be one of the people who would be going because I was an aircraft administration man. Because I had to keep the books and, and the record for the pilots. They have a flight log. They would uh, write down anything that they thought was wrong with the aircraft when they land. And so we had to they write up the order and send it to uh, the maintenance to get it off service. And they will uh, work on it and repair it. And then they would come back with the order. And we had to log it in the books there that the aircraft was good, it was done. Everything was taken care of, everything was safe. 
for the pilots to fly again. And that was my job. I left in 1967. You got married while you were in the service. Yes, I did. Uh, yeah, I got married when I was, yeah, that was kind of crazy too. I got married because my sister was getting married. I got married when I was in Pensacola, Florida. And I was only with her for eight months before I got bought to go to Japan. I, that, was, that was a crazy thing to do, but <laughs> okay. I'll do it. So I did it. But it, it turned out all right for a while. So I just picked it up and maybe we could make something out of it and it worked out. But it worked out of the way. When did you find out Gwen could sing? When I met her, her name was Gwen Lemoski. And I, I found out she could sing when we got married. I knew she could sing then, but she wasn't singing or doing anything until I came back when I got out of the Navy. I put my old hospital group back together again. And we had lost a member in the Vietnam War. And so uh, I decided to ask my wife if she wanted to sing for the group. So we started singing together, the Jiving Jets. And then they started having problems too, and ups and downs in their situations. So we split up, and so we became a duo. What kind right. of gigs were you doing? Playing a lot of uh, R&B clubs, soul clubs at the time in West Palm Beach, Florida. And I was working as a doorman during the daytime and second at night. And I was doing all kinds of odd jobs, making dance meet. And, and yeah, it was good. I had two clubs that was really uh, jumping in, the Ebony Club in Riverview, Florida. And had Sunset in uh, West Palm Beach, Florida. And also there was another club called the Cotton Club. And we used to work those clubs, uh, rent the rooms and do shows ourselves. And we had a big following on the weekends. Now, how did you get a recording contract and who was it with? Oh, that happened when um, we knew a DJ, WRBD Radio, Fort Lauderdale, Joe Fisher. And he went to the same high school. And we always did a lot of shows for him with the radio DJs. Because we were very, very popular in that area, West Palm Beach, Miami area. So he came to us and asked if we would like to open uh, open night for Betty Wright at the uh, the Ebony Lounge. I said, Betty Wright, yeah. At that time, Betty Wright had, I think, the song was Tino Woman. want us to open for her at the uh, the Ebony Lounge. And so we did. And there we met Willie Clark. He, he was Betty Wright's Rice manager. And he he was so impressed with us. He said, we just formed a, 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 a record company down in Miami. And I think you guys be great. And we're looking for talent there, you know. And I think you guys, we could, we could work with you guys. So I said, okay. So he gave me this telephone number. I said, call us, man. Come down there and make an appointment. Call us. We're going to talk to you. I said, okay, good. So I took a telephone number and I put it in my wallet. And Okay. I didn't call him again until uh, like a year and a half later. Mm, why'd you hesitate? Because I, I, I thought we wasn't ready yet for recording. So I want, I want to try something a little different besides playing R&B clubs, you know, the soul black clubs. So there was another club down in West Palm Beach called uh, the Candy Bar. And the Candy Bar was a club where mostly the uh, majority of white audience would go to. But a lot of people from over in Palm Beach, the Kennedys used to come there. And uh, other high society people used to come across the West Palm Beach Bar. I just wanted to try it out and see the reaction. 
So we went down there one night and I met the uh, owner of the club and we asked him, could we get up there with the band and sing a song? He said, sure. And so we walked up and they said, you know this song, you know, you know Knock on Wood? Sure, all that stuff. So just no rehearsal, nothing. Just started playing knock on wood and we got there and sung the song and turned the place out. Turned the place out. People going to more, 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 more. And then we did uh the Salmon Dave when uh when something is wrong with my baby. When something is wrong with my And we sit down and all of a sudden, uh, Irvin Tubman bought a bottle of champagne to our table <laughs> and gave us a bottle of champagne. See, you guys were wonderful. Give, you know, he'll, he'll have a bottle of champagne on the house. So, hey, wonderful. The band loved us too. So, he said, can I have your telephone number? So, I gave him my telephone. And a week later, maybe he called us and asked us how would we like to come down there and, and, and sing in this club. I say, whoa. To perform six nights a week, I pay X amount of dollars with the band here. I couldn't believe it. Hmm. And at the time, it was there was more money he was paying me for that six nights that I was making the whole time for working. You know, mm -hmm. I said sure. So we started performing with the band in Candy Bar. Actually, me and my wife, we were drawing crowds from everywhere, black crowds and white crowds. And this is back during the, the civil rights days. You know, in the southern part of Florida, you know, and Martin Luther King and Kennedy's and so on. This is a time when everybody was coming together, but it was so unbelievable what we did there. And while I was working there, I got an extra job cleaning the bar up. Mm -hmm. So every, we were saying that night, and then in the daytime, I'd go down and clean the whole club up. The tables, the floors, the bars. The dressing rooms, everything. I would find X amount of dollars on the floor, quite a bit, quite a bit. I would find wallets, you know, uh, diamond earrings and stuff like that. And all that stuff, I would give it to the uh, club owner and say, this was on the floor, that was on the floor, turn it into him. But all the loose money on the floor, hey, just credit card, and, you know, but all the loose money was a blessing to me. How long did that gig last? For eight months. And then the band got another offer, so they moved to Fort Lauderdale. All right, so I was out of the job, like, okay. About a week later, we get a phone call from Dave. Dave, he called me and said, George, you ain't going to come down and uh, I told a man about you guys, come down and audition for him, you know? There was another band from Boston, the Maximus Show Band. It had 13 pieces. Now, 13 pieces, that's a lot of band, isn't it? Yeah, the Maximus Show Band. So we went on before the Maximus Show Band. And of course, Gwen and I turned the place out, only with the four-piece business section. The crowd went wild. They went insane. Fort Lauderdale, Florida. This is where all the university college kids from up north to come down for the spring break in Florida every year. They still do it now. And so this is where I wanted to see if we was good enough, you know, for not just for Florida, but for, for the United States, basically. How long did that gig last and how was that one? to the season, six months, same thing as before. And this is when now I thought about Willie Clark. I gave him a telephone call and uh, he said, someone would come and see you guys in Lena's nightclub. 
What year was this? 1969. So the guy came down and saw us on the stage was performing. Brad Shapiro, they were producing for Austin label down in Miami. And uh, he saw us say, wow, you guys, and Willie was, Pee-wee was right. We call you called Willie Flock Pee-wee. Hey, Pee-wee is right. Oh, you guys come down and sign the contract tomorrow. So then we were down to uh, Tone Distributors and Austin Productions, which was in High Lear, Florida, and met the people there. They gave us a contract, and we signed the contract. I was so happy to say, they want to record us. Go make a record. I read it. It's okay. I'll sign it. They want to spend their money to make a record on us. It's a plus for us. I didn't have the money to make a record. So, hey, they were so happy. And so we signed the contract, and we recorded our first song as a duo. And that song was called uh, Three Hearts and a Tangle. Another song was uh, One of These Days. One of these days. How'd the records do? Well, I think I bought the first copy. That's it. <laughs> it didn't do that well. It was my first time recording, you know? It was no big hit. They played it on uh, local stations, but then uh, I started to do a uh, solo song. You better stop this dogging me around, baby, and take this hurt off of me. Put that other guy down, baby, and take this hurt off of me. And that was my first single after I would do all together. Brad Shapiro, Steve Lamo wanted to uh, ask me if Gwen could sing a solo, be a solo act. I said, I said, sure, she can be a solo act. She said, I let her, you know, be her own. I stepped back at the time because during those days, in the 60s, it was more female artists was making the noise more than R&B male artists. You know, they had like Supreme going up with Motown and Patti LaBelle and Aretha Franklin and and all the R&B solo acts. How did that affect your marriage? You were a duo, now you're single. Is there like a competition? No, not with me. It wasn't a competition at all. She was doing a female thing, you know, and uh, if they concentrate on her. At the time, I started, you know, managing Gwen. I just stepped back and let her do her thing. How did you two do individually? Well, she uh, she did quite well, actually. She had a lot of hit songs, R&B-wise. Steve Lamo was a producer. I've sung a lot of her records, background vocals, her and me, uh, myself and Betty Wright. 
we're like a little small little family, you know. We saw the Betty Wright songs, and we did studio work too. You know, instead of my rocking chair. Rocket Chair was my song to sing at the microphone and Gwen was with me. I knew the song was a hit and Gwen didn't have a hit yet, you know? She didn't have no big hit yet. I felt the mic ready to sing the song. And she's a little upset then because of a rocker baby. So I said, well, I'm, I'm trying to make her happy and give her a song. I said, okay, you take this song and you sing this one. I said, like, I want you to sing. But sing the song like I tell you to sing the song. Don't Scream and yell in your song like you do most of your songs. Sing it sweet, soft. And she listened and she sang the song. She followed your directions very well because mm -hmm. she sounds so sweet and sexy and cool. She's just laying it out nice yeah. and matter of fact. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's me doing the background vocal. Rock, 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 me. I know she could do it. I know she could do it. Sing the song now. Sing Sexy Baby. There you go. You got it. Rock your baby. How are you still able to sing that song and sing that high? I guess my natural gift. I've been blessed with a voice that's to be gifted with a voice that can sing and spit the same and high. And, Oh my goodness, you can still do it. <laughs> I still can do it. That's right. <laughs> That's my signature. So, what was going on with your recordings right before Rock Your Baby? How were you doing? Actually, the truth was, I was going to give up singing because uh, Gwen just gave me a baby girl. I said, Well, uh, I got another extra mouth to feed. I got to get my eight to five job or uh, change my whole life. I got another responsibility. But I have recorded about uh, a year and a half. And so I said, I'm going to give it one more try anyway. You hadn't recorded in a year and a half? Correct. I hadn't recorded again. I was concentrating on Gwen, and she was doing a lot of recording. I had a job working, you know, in uh, 95. I used to work at Pratt & Whitney, doorman. I used to wash dishes. I did some everything. Wonder washing. Everybody had to hustle out there, you know. And I didn't mind doing it. So before Rock Your Baby, you weren't doing any background or anything? Oh, yeah. We were doing background for Criteria at the time and uh, TK Records. I never gave it a studio. I was doing it on the side. Same with Betty Wright, Ben and Lattimore, Case of the Sunshine Band. How it came about. Gwen had went to Memphis for TK Records, the Austin Productions then, to do an album because they had leased her to Columbia Records. So Columbia Records picked up this album from Gwen. So we went down to Miami to give a listen to the album when she came back from Memphis and to pick out the, what, which, what single would be the single or whatever. So we were down there and all of a sudden, Rick Finch walked into the office and he said, George, we caught a song last night and it's too high for Casey to sing. The key was too high. It's a great track. I said, it'd be good for your voice, though. Because uh, we know you hit them with high notes, with high notes and everything. I said, oh, let me hear the track. So I went with Rick, and I, I heard the track. I came back, and I asked uh, Steve Alamo, the producer over the whole 
studio there. I've recorded a long time and you owe me a lot of favors because and I say, Rick and uh it's got the song wanting to record it. Steve Lemon say, okay, you can do it, John, do it, do it. When you first listened to the music, what did you think? I thought I said, wow, this is this is something totally new. It's not like it's so different, and it's not the typical uh formula for RB music, RB singing, you know. It was it was indescribable. I knew I felt something this like song could change, it could change the music scene in a way as a hit. Now was Casey's voice on there? No, it was no voice, just the music. And while I was speaking to Rick Finch and Casey, I was telling him, hey, you know, I'm thinking about uh, giving up this business anyway, because I have my baby daughter now, you know? And uh, and and I thought about it, and I said, baby daughter, and telling Jennifer, you know, how you can do it and rock her and hold her and put sleep and all that. And so I, I think that gave Casey the idea of uh, rock your baby. That was the time when I, you know, Casey uh, got inspired to write Rock Your Baby because I was talking about my baby daughter. But the lyrics wasn't there then, just the music. It was on a cassette. I, I had no text about it. I just took the music on it. How many times did you listen to that track before you showed up the following week? Oh, I listened to the track about, oh, I think I wore the cassette out, though. It played over, over and over and over again. I just studied the whole track, the movements, you know, what the song was doing, what the organ was doing, the drums was doing, the guitar. Going like, whoa, I had no text at all until I went back later in the studio. I studied the track, I just heard the music. So I asked my mother, How would you like a man to sing to you? And she told me. I asked my sister, I asked my sister's girlfriends, How they like a boy or a man to sing to you? What kind of style? And I thought about my, my two favorite artists I really loved, I grew up. Same with, and that was Sam Cooke. Darling, you sent me. I know you sent me. The Smokey Robinson. My two all-time favorite artists, when they sang, I was talking about their voices. I listened to other artists too, like Aaron Neville. Tell it like it is. Don't be ashamed. Let your conscience be your guide. I like that too, but Smokey Robinson and Sam Cooke was my idol. You said you asked various ladies. How should you sing this song? And what did they tell you? Like sing a soft, gentle, not screaming, just nicely in the ear. So I thought about, oh, hey, that's Sam Cooke and uh, Spooky Robinson. You show up at the studio a week later. What happens when you walk in the door? I just walked in the studio and say, okay, let's go. Let's do the song. It was like, Having fun, you know, Casey and Rick Finch, I think, I think Rick was 17 years old. And uh, Casey, I think Casey was 19 and 20 years old. Boys, it was just me, Casey, Rick, Sherry Smith, and myself. 
Who handed you the lyrics? Casey did. Did he sing it with you? No, no. How long did it take for you to interpret the lyrics? I look at the lyrics. I just follow the music, follow the beat. I just get my own thing to it. Casey just say, just say, woman, take me on rock, baby. Woman, take me on rock, baby. That was it, you know? I just, oh, sure. I was saying, let's go ahead. Let's go into like a little jam session. Put the tape on, and I recorded it. I just read it, you know, one time. I knew the word. If the word was simple, woman, take me on. There's nothing to it. Just say you want to do it. Open up. So I've memorized the words already. You know? And the second verse, too, I had in my head already. I laid back, you know, and just said, okay, let's go with it. Was that song meant for Gwen to sing? That's an old wives' tale that she was supposed to sing it, but she was late for the session. That was not true at all. The song was read for me, and Rick knew because before we had already did a song on a Casey album, Casey and Rick album. It was called Casey and Jumping New Band at one time. And one of the first songs I did was back in 1973. We sung on that, Gwen and I better write. The song was called Queen of Club. And on the Queen of Club, that's me doing all that. That's me doing all of that. How many takes did you have to do before you laid it down? Rock Your Baby, one take. All the songs I've done with Casey all have been one takes. So what was going through your mind while you were singing this song? Were you were your eyes open, eyes closed? Were you imagining you were on the beach? Because you really have a nice, soft, sensual feel to it. Yes, I imagine, yeah. I imagine that I was there. I was singing to women out there, girls. In my mind, personal, you know, just put myself in a personal situation, you know, and actually take me on and rock me, you know. I was really just rocking with the song. And I just thought about that last part, you know, the party. And that part came to me while I was singing the song. And because I thought about it, because I used to watch, I used to play as a kid, Tarzan. Johnny Watson. <laughs> <laughs> now, who would have thought I, that? So I just say, do it. I just did it, you know? And Casey said, George, that, ah, take on that last one. I'm saying one more time, but last one, I want you to hold that last one. Ah, take me on and rock me. Ah, take me on and rock me. Ah. Then Rick said, George, that last one, I'm going to punch you in that last one. I'm going to hold it as long as you can. I said, okay, no problem. No, no. Ah, you played it back. Ah, take me on and rock me. Ah, take me on and rock me. The last one. Punch it. Ah. That was it. So after 
they stopped rolling the tape, what did everybody feel like? What did they say? No, that's it. We was having such a, you know, a, just having a time in the studio, just chilling, laid back, with Miami vibes. So <laughs> you sing the first four lines. Of course. Woman, take me in your arms, rock your baby. Woman, take me in your arms, rock your baby. There's nothing to it. Just say you want to do it. Open up your heart and let the loving start. Mm, you still got it. So how long after you cut it did they release it? They released it on Blades up there. They released it in Miami, Fort Lauderdale area, West Palm Beach area, on a three-hour release station at the time. And it took off like wildfire. How long did it take for you to figure out, hey, this is really hot? The pop station, Miami pop station picked it up. They started playing in the Miami. The pop station picked it right across over then. When it crossed over, I started realizing, oh, I got a hot song here. And how long had the song been released when it crossed over? Only a month, two weeks. They say, oh, we got a sale here in Miami area for 50,000 copies, orders. Next week, 100,000 copies. I said, what's, whoa. The next day I knew the, uh, the station in Miami, the pop station there. They was on it. And I started realizing then I have a little light hit here. And then all of a sudden I get a telephone call from the Miami Herald newspaper and the Palm Beach Post, my hometown newspaper, that I used to be a paper boy. And they want to give me an interview. The Palm Beach Post, Beach Post would give me an interview. Oh, and I started getting nervous, but I wasn't prepared for what, what was yet to come. And then I'm telling to myself, okay. Then I started getting radio calls from uh, other radio stations out of uh, Detroit, Chicago, and for interviews. You know, they want to talk to me and come up there and it was, it was getting so, so, uh, so crazy before I realized it. I was getting called from Dick Clark, American Bandstand, television. When Oprah was in uh, Chicago on a TV show there at the time, on that show, and I was on uh, Red Action is, Soul Train. And we're very excited about having aboard this time a young man who is responsible for what will be remembered as one of the biggest smash single recordings of 1974 on the TK label entitled Rock Your Baby. His name is George McRae. Then all of a sudden I get a call from the man himself, James Brown. James Brown called me and told me I want you guys to open up, be my opening act. You go out with James Brown, that's when I realized then I said, oh, shoot. I said, baby, we're going to hit the big times. <laughs> and we went out for James Brown all over the South and also on the West Coast. And then the next show we did was with the Jackson Five, opening for them. How did it feel? felt wonderful. Especially when you're young, you know, you're young, you got like, all the energy. That's what you work for. To me, that's your reward. But this reward for me was so unbelievable at the time. I find myself, I never played the Apollo. Gwen played the Apollo, but not me. I played Madison Square Garden. Mm. And then all of a sudden, Henry Stone called me in to the office and also my wife. 
I say, George, you got a big hit on your hands. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, a big hit. I just made a deal with RCA Records. RCA, oh, RCA. Wow, I'm going like, yeah, for international, international, not national, international distribution. I'm going, oh. How long had the record been released when there was talk of international distribution? It released for six months already. Tell me about Crossing the Pond. I had signed with the agency, booking agency, out of our New York University Attraction. They started getting uh, calls from all over. Rocky Baby's number one in England. Rocky Baby's number one in Germany. Rocky Baby's number one all over Europe. I'm going, oh, Europe. You have to go to Europe. You got to go to Europe. And at the time, disco was big in Europe more than the United States at the time. And I didn't realize it. Dance music. Because, you know, Europe has always been a big club scene. Club, black clubs. Mm -hmm. So this was happening in Europe. I had to go there. And before I realized, I went to Europe. Then I came back and I went to Canada. And from Canada, I went to Japan, and Australia, New Zealand. What was KC's reaction to the song? Because you hit before he hit. We all worked together. We enjoyed each other. You know, there was no animosity. Got a song. Okay, we'll do it. Because after Rock Your Baby... I had other hits by Casey and Finch. Casey and Rick was my producer on all my first two albums. My first two albums, 1974 and 75, it was a Rocky Baby album and then the George McCurry album. Uh, I get lifted. Can have it on. It's been so long. I love the kiss from them. Do you ever get tired of singing that song? Tell you the truth, no, I don't. Actually, I don't get tired. It's a song that God blessed me with. I was blessed to do a song that made the whole world love and be loved. I don't think I would ever stop singing a song because of the appreciation of my fans and what I see from them, and what they've told me, the story of their lives and how they met and what the song has done for their life and brought joy to them. And even handicapped children have lifted them so much, the kids. There's so many things this song have done in people's lives that really uplift them and make them forget all the troubles and all the situation that's going on in the world. And right now, Rocky Babies is one of those songs still that lift people up, give them hope and give them happiness, give them a love instead of uh, 
all this propaganda we hear uh, about division and all this now. They're trying to do, but the young people today are more intelligent than we used to be. And they're much more wiser than we used to be. And I know that they themselves just waiting themselves to make a better world for them to live in once we are gone. Where do you spend your time now? You've been living in Europe for a long time, haven't you? I've been living in Europe and also living in Aruba. That's where I am now. What happened to the United States? I love the States. I go, all my family still in the United States. Mm -hmm. And I go home many times to visit my family because my roots are. And I'm like a step away, a stone away from uh, Florida. So I'm like a two and a half, three hour flight to Miami. But what is it about Europe that made you settle there? I met a European girl. That's all. It was about <laughs> love. I fell in love with a European girl. And she's a beautiful lady. She's a, a Dutch girl. And we've only been married for 10 years, but we've been together for 32 years. And I have a son. I have a nice family. I, I've been married three times. It took me three times to get it right. <laughs> hey, at least you did find it. Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. So I'm very happy. That's why I'm here in Aruba, too. Last question. How many copies has that song actually sold? At the moment, I say it's over 100 million or more. It still sells. New generation. That's quite a legacy. You know, also, we forget about uh, South America. It was number one in South America, too. Venezuela, Colombia, Brazil, Argentina, Uruguay. You certainly cemented your place in history. One, two, Hughes Corporation, Rocket Baby. Those are the first two disco songs. Correct. And I say thanks to Casey and Rick Finch, writers of the song. They were fantastic. Discover more about George and his music at his website, georgemccray.com. And be sure to listen to George's new single, How Much I Love You, on Spotify. Oh, baby. In July 1974, Rock Your Baby reached number one on the Billboard R&B Singles Chart, number one on the Hot 100, and number 38 on the Year-End Chart.
If you like what you've heard, please subscribe to this podcast and feel free to discuss on the Song Surgery Podcast Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram pages. Until next time.